They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. Welcome to A Couple of Notes. I'm Rome. And I'm Caitlin. Each episode, we read a book we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This episode, we read Less by Andrew Sean Greer. The story of a man who will go to the actual ends of the earth to avoid his ex. Less was written by Andrew Sean Greer and published in 2017. It was a Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle top 10 books of 2017 choice and a New York Times notable book of 2017. In an ironic twist that we'll discuss later, Greer also won a Pulitzer for Less. Arthur Less is having a midlife crisis. After spending his 20s as the paramour of a famous but tortured poet, his 30s building a mediocre writing career, and his 40s sleeping with a younger man, Arthur is about to turn 50 with nothing to show for it but low self-esteem and one critically panned novel. The man he loves is getting married, and Les needs to do whatever he can to avoid the wedding. How will he do this? Leave the country, of course. Arthur plans a world tour, accepting every opportunity from teaching a course in Germany to speaking at a conference in Mexico, and even writing food reviews in Japan. His first stop is New York City to mediate a Q&A for another, more successful author. It goes terribly. The author gets food poisoning, but he does meet a cute redhead at a bar, so that's nice. There's also an awkward moment where Les meets an old man, only to realize that this old man is his former lover, which makes him also feel very old. He leaves New York and flies straight to Mexico City, where he will be speaking at a conference about his former lover, Robert a famous poet who is now too old to travel to such events himself. Unfortunately for Arthur, he is one of the last presenters of the three-day festival, and being unable to speak or understand Spanish, he is utterly bored. He has suggested several beautiful tourist locations, but they are all closed. Then he learns that he will not be giving this presentation alone. The conference has also invited Robert's ex-wife. The wife Robert left to be with Arthur the wife Arthur last saw when he was secretly sleeping with her husband. Les panics. He does not want to be anywhere near this woman, especially not on stage. Lucky for him, though, she falls and breaks a hip right before the presentation. So he doesn't have to deal with that. Off to Italy! In Italy, Arthur is nominated for an award, and he is quite sure he will not win. He has only been nominated for an award once before, and the presenter effectively said, everyone nominated to a day deserves it, except that son of a bitch Arthur Less. So imagine his surprise when he finds out that Italians love his book, and he wins! Feeling invigorated? Berlin, Germany! Les is supposed to be here to teach a summer class at college. And he is doing that, but mostly he spends his time in Germany with a new man. He meets a guy his very first night, and they have a lovely summer affair that leaves Arthur wishing he could stay. He would have stayed, if he'd been asked. But no one asks, and so it is off to Morocco with a short stop in Paris. In Paris, he accepts an extended layover and explores the city, looking up an old friend and scoring an invite to a rooftop party. His friend never shows up to the party, but he has a lovely time making out with another married man. Again, he hopes his new lover will ask him to stay, but he doesn't, and Arthur flies to Marrakesh. In Morocco, Arthur rides a camel across the desert learns that a pair of good friends are breaking up for the most ridiculous reason, 
and meets a heartbroken lesbian who is also turning 50 on this trip. She tells him that his new book sounds boring, and Arthur leaves for India ready to rewrite the whole thing. In India, Arthur does rewrite a good deal of his manuscript, but the experience is cut short when he injures his foot and can no longer climb the mountain up to his bungalow. Lucky for him, his old frenemy Carlos, also his ex's dad, owns a resort nearby. He's able to finish his rewrites and leaves for Japan feeling exhausted and ready to go home. In Japan, honestly not much happens except he eats some good food and breaks a wall. He tries to leave early when he learns that Robert has had a stroke, but after a video call assures him that the poet is not on death's door, he finishes the last few days of his trip. For our final chapter, we are officially introduced to our narrator, whose identity we have been getting hints of for the last few chapters. Freddy Pelu, the lover Arthur traveled across the globe to avoid, is waiting for him when he returns home. Freddy tells us about how, while Les was traveling the globe, he realized he didn't want the life he thought he did with the husband he thought he wanted. He wanted Les. Now that we've traveled the world with Arthur Les, we'll have a short ad break. Welcome back. Let's get into our notes now, starting with our initial thoughts. So this is our Pride Month pick, <laughs> and I think I liked it a lot more than you did. Yes, like... <laughs> It's kind of hard to put my thoughts into words about this story because there's a lot to like here. Mm -hmm. And especially when you go over the summary and the things that happen, like, the story is exactly what it sets out to be. It is an odyssey about a gay man who's turning 50. And I think that's great because you don't get to hear those kinds of stories a lot. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, around the world in 40, 50, 90... 80? 80, 80 <laughs> days? 80 days is such a thing now? Around the 80 days? It's like around the word old 80 days mixed with the Odyssey plus old gays. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. And I think stories like this definitely deserve to be told. I just think that maybe the sense of humor and the writing style wasn't for me. And I want to say that is completely fine. Mm -hmm. I found myself calling this book The Gay Secret Life of Walter Mitty mm -hmm. a lot. And, you know, if you read The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, or if you saw the movie, and you were like, hell yeah, this is my jam, then maybe less the gay Walter Mitty is exactly what you're looking for. If you saw that movie or read that book and you thought, I don't really understand what's happening. Why is he at a pizza hut? What's the deal with the Stretch Armstrong doll? Then, you know, maybe not for you. I think I would compare this book to a $100 cocktail. <laughs> like, there's a lot going on here, and it's brilliant and beautiful and artsy and fantastic, but I'm really more of a vodka soda type girl. <laughs> so I think I'd like, I'd like you to give it to me straight. <laughs> I don't need all of this fanfare, but I respect it. <laughs> I really respect what this book is doing, and I would recommend this to a certain type of reader. Yeah, and like you said, there's a lot going on in this book, so let's break that down. Let's talk about exactly what's going on in this book that's good, that's bad, and also this is one situation where we're gonna have a third section that is basically just observations. Things that we didn't necessarily find good or bad, but simply that we think an incoming reader might want to know about because they were there and they were important and it's worth discussing. They're worth discussing, exactly. Sounds good. So we'll start off with the prose. Mm -hmm. Now, the narrative voice is very strong, 
And that is probably because the narrator is a character, even though we don't know that for most of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't actually get to know that Freddy Pelu is the narrator, which is interesting because he is in the book from chapter one mm -hmm. as Arthur's ex-lover. He is the young man that Arthur has been sleeping with for several years now, who is now getting married. And Arthur is fleeing the country to avoid going to Freddy's wedding. Mm -hmm. But it is not until the final chapter that we learn that Freddy is the one narrating this story. Because he discusses himself in third person all the way up until the final chapter, when he suddenly switches to I statements. Mm-hmm. Which is a little jarring, but also you start to get those hints a few chapters beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, I had the vibe, I was like, this is being narrated by someone that knows Arthur. I didn't know for sure that it was Freddy until, like, the second to last chapter, and then I started to figure it might be. Yeah, I started getting those vibes, too, towards the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think, like, we definitely committed to a decision with the style of narration. <laughs> I do think it was a decision that worked in some regards, because we don't learn that much about Freddy as a character from the flashbacks and the memories. Yeah, we know that he's younger than Arthur, that the first time they met, Freddy was 12, but not in like a creepy pedo way. Um, they met like one time when he was 12 and then not again until he was an adult, it wasn't like a grooming situation. Mm -hmm. We learn that he's a high school English teacher, mm. or history. History teacher? I don't English really remember. <laughs> He's a high school something teacher. Something boring and kind of humanities adjacent. <laughs> and I think narrating this from Freddy's point of view does make you root for the relationship, especially considering that we don't get that much from when they were together. So I think it works, but I'm not sure it worked for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we can touch more on that later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, we will talk about that more later. You already mentioned that you enjoyed reading from an older perspective, and I enjoyed that as well because I think we don't get to hear the point of view of gay men older than, like, their 30s mm -hmm. very often. And, like, I've read the story before of a gay man feeling like his youth is escaping him, but when I've heard that story before, the gay man in question has been, like, 35. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, what are you complaining about? You're 35. Settle down a little. <laughs> but so much of queer culture, specifically for gay men, is tied to youth. Mm -hmm. And so to experience this gay man who is turning 50, who has lived through kind of these major historical changes, you know, he first entered into the gay scene in the late 70s. He lived through AIDS. He lived through kind of the upheavals and the heteronormalization of the queer movement and all that stuff. And now he's reflecting back on all that. I enjoyed that perspective because I think that's something we're just now starting to see more of. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that gay men are finally being able to grow old. Yeah. I think the reason that this is an important story is because we don't get that many perspectives from old gays because we lost so many during the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important for those who lived through it and still have those kinds of memories to share their experiences. Yeah, and before AIDS we were losing gay men to alcoholism, drug addiction, 
hate crimes, jail, suicide. Mm -hmm. It's a recent development that gay men are allowed to grow old and allowed to tell their stories as they grow old. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that's something we're going to see a lot more of. Yes, me too. We are getting to see a little bit more of it in general. Um, you know, with the Will and Grace reboot, with other TV shows that are featuring older gay actors, things like that. Um, I know Neil Patrick Harris has a whole show out right now about being like a single gay man in his 40s, which is weird because he's married. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not that weird as an actor. <laughs> I mean, it's not that weird as an actor, but it's just like, it's weird that they chose Neil Patrick Harris for this specifically because like, when I think of couple goals in Hollywood for gay men, like Neil Patrick Harris and David Burke is one of the first ones you think of. That's true. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to see Neil Patrick Harris there being like, I'm a gay man in my 40s and I'm single. It's like, no, you're not, Neil. <laughs> Go home to your husband. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> we needed someone old and charming, and I guess Neil Patrick Harris is becoming an old gay. I guess so. <laughs> I guess Neil Patrick Harris is an old gay now. I mean, he was on TV like all the way back in the 80s, so. Uh, but again, I digress. <laughs> I'm getting off topic. The point is, we liked that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Moving right along, <laughs> mm -hmm. I want to talk for a moment about one of the recurring themes in this book that I loved, mm -hmm. which is there is a lot of commentary in this book about the idea of bad versus good gays. Mm -hmm. At multiple points, Walter, not Walter, this is not Walter Mitty. At multiple points, Arthur Less questions if he is a bad writer, and then he begins to connect that to if he's a bad gay. And that even comes up at one point when a person tells him to his face that he is a bad gay. And what effectively happens in that conversation is the same man who, during the first time Arthur was nominated for an award, basically said everyone who's nominated today deserves it except for Arthur Less. <laughs> he meets him at a party in Paris, and that guy's like, you know why I said that? You know why you're not considered one of the great gay writers of our time? Because you're an asshole. <laughs> Precisely. But what this guy says the answer is, is because he's a bad gay. And the reason he says he's a bad gay is because he writes sad gay characters. The gay people that he writes in his story, because the book that he's known for is called Calypso, which is a retelling of the part of the Odyssey myth where Odysseus ends up on Calypso's island and he fucks around with her for a while and then he eventually leaves and goes back to his wife. Only in this version, Calypso is a gorgeous little twink. <laughs> so it's about a man who is married to a woman, but who is gay or bisexual or some kind of queer, ends up on this island with this beautiful, magical young man. He has an affair with him, and then in the end, he leaves and he goes back to his wife. And so this critic or whatever is like, you're a bad gay because you wrote that ending. Because you wrote a man who wasn't comfortable in his sexuality, who eventually returns to a life of heterosexuality. And that's a disservice to the queer community. And Les's response to that is, 
But that's how the story ends. I was rewriting the Odysseus story. That's how the story ends. <laughs> and it kind of becomes this question of like, is Arthur Less a bad gay or is he just a bad writer? <laughs> and you know, he talks about the other characters he writes and like most of the gay characters he writes that people don't like that he writes and say that he's a bad gay for writing are gay men who are self-loathing, heteronormative, and sad. Les himself is self-loathing, heteronormative, and sad. So it's kind of like he's just writing autobiographies. Mm -hmm. And so again, I ask, is he a bad gay? Or is he just a bad writer? Or is he perhaps neither? Because writing what you know doesn't necessarily make you a bad writer. Exactly. And I feel like it's one of those things where maybe it's the changing times. Because if we look at classic stories and classic movies, mm -hmm. the story of a man who's gay but still marries a woman is very common. Mm -hmm. I've seen that movie before. I've read that book before. Mm -hmm. Call Me By Your Name was fairly recent and it still was kind of along the same lines. Everyone was freaking obsessed with that movie. I did not care for it. I did not care for it at all. But that's not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is, this is a true story. And I think that maybe we're at this point in our history where we want to move past this and focus on queer joy, mm -hmm. which is important and good. And there should be a lot of stories about queer joy and queer people ending up together and not dying or faking being straight in the end of the story. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's really fair to erase that part of our history. Yeah. And it, not even just our history, but our reality. This is still a reality for some people. Mm -hmm. And it's sad, but it's true. And it's, I feel like we're bad readers if we don't accept that sad stories about gays can be just as important as happy stories about gays. Mm -hmm. You know, it is just as important to tell stories about the hardships gay people go through as it is to tell stories about gay people just being really gay and happy. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, maybe there's some desire to always portray ourselves in a positive light that mm -hmm. makes people more opposed to these kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. But like you said, I think that's more of a bad reader issue than an issue with Arthur's writing or with his queerness. Mm -hmm. And clearly Arthur isn't a bad writer because he won an award. Mm -hmm. He does. He won an award. And it continues, that theme continues on with the story that he's writing now. The book he's writing now is compared to a gay Ulysses. It's a day in the life of a gay man walking around San Francisco with his problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which a lot of people are like, that's boring as fuck and we hate it. <laughs> you know, even the publishing company he's been with for years who published his first book and everything are like, we're not publishing this. This is stupid and we hate it. Mm -hmm it kind of comes back to this idea of do they hate it because it's too gay or because it's too sad or is it just that it's poorly written mm -hmm. and i'm gonna get even more into that later on when we talk about the cons because effectively the book that arthur is writing he calls it swift mm -hmm. because it's about a character whose last name is swift and you will realize as we talk about it more later on, he's writing less. Yeah, it's very meta. It's very meta, which I kind of love, but I also kind of hate. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And so we will discuss it more. Nice. But first we will discuss another positive real quick before we move on. Yes, our final positive note is the ending is adorable. We love it. And it kind of defies expectations because the story has been so focused on tragedy and sadness. Mm -hmm. And so to end with Les and Freddy getting back together gives us this kind of euphoric hit of queer joy that we've clearly been wanting. <laughs> so it gives the reader what they want. <laughs> it defies expectations. He comes home to his wife <laughs> at the end of the Odyssey. <laughs> But also, they weren't together at the time, so all the affairs they had during the Odyssey were cheating. I respect that. I respect that, too. That's always the worst part of the Odyssey, is how much Odysseus cheats on his faithful wife. So much cheating. Mm-hmm. I've heard people try to excuse that. And just don't, okay? Just don't. Just do not. Please do not. One of the things I think is cute is that there's been a lot of humor, and I use the word humor loosely, <laughs> There's been a lot of humor throughout this book centered around the idea that Arthur is not the brightest <laughs> and kind of clumsy. And I found it irritating, even though I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be charming, throughout most of the book. But then, at the very end of the book, we're suddenly seeing through Freddy's eyes as he watches out the window and watches Arthur walking up the front steps of his house, and he describes the experience of Arthur, like, getting his coat caught on the same bush that he always gets his coat caught on because he never remembers to walk around it, and tripping on the same step he always trips on, and things like that. Only Freddy thinks it's adorable and loves it so much. Mm -hmm. And it's this moment of it's like, I'm still finding it irritating. But at the same time, I relate to it. Because that's love. Like, I find it irritating when Les does it. But, like, when you hit your knee on the same <laughs> corner of the bed every day. I don't do that anymore. We got a footless bed now. We got a new bed, exactly. But when you used to do that, when we had our old bed, I thought it was adorable. I can't have beds with those... <laughs> What are they called? Into the... It's not that... The opposite of a headboard. A footboard? Footboard, yeah. Footboard. I can't have those anymore. They hurt me too much. Mm -hmm. I will always hit it. Yeah. It's just, it's just one of those things that, like, when you love someone, their incompetence suddenly becomes adorable. <laughs> and I also kind of like how that tied into the book Arthur was writing. You know, he talks about how to fix the character in Swift. He was going to make him a fool. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the idea wasn't just, you know, being clumsy and having a chronic case of bad luck, mm -hmm. but also that he didn't realize how many good things he had going in his life, and he thought that everything sucked. And that does also play into Arthur's character, because he thinks his life is over, his youth is falling away, he's never gonna make anything of himself, he feels like a loser. But this man went on a trip around the world, met multiple lovers, <laughs> fixed up his entire novel, won an award like things are actually going pretty great for him but he can't see that yeah which like, makes him a fool just like in swift and i really liked that tie-in not just because it was meta but because it was deep and very true to how some people experience life only being able to focus on the bad and not realizing how lucky they are yeah there was a there was a moment i really liked where um carlos pelu who is freddie's adopted father and an old 
kind of friend, kind of nemesis <laughs> of Robert's. Like, he's some guy that he's known since the 80s, and he's, like, always kind of hated him, but they've also always kind of known each other and run in the same circles and been friends. <laughs> and, you know, that mean girl kind of friendship. <laughs> but Carlos tells Les that he always believed one half of your life is comedy and one half of your life is tragedy. And that Arthur got to live the comedy half of his life first, and then now he's entering the tragedy half. But then he says, but I don't think that's true. You, Arthur, your whole life is a comedy. <laughs> Look at you. You just stumble into good things everywhere. You're just walking through life, running into shit, and it just keeps working for you. And that is kind of the moment when Arthur's like, oh, dang, he might be right. Because consider for a moment. Arthur Less, a supposedly very unsuccessful young man, who is, you know, not so young anymore. <laughs> yes, a supposedly very unsuccessful older man who is supposedly over the hill, forgotten, etc. is able to travel the world, the whole world, three continents, no, four continents, no, Mexico's in North America, three continents, <laughs> three continents, travel the world. Oh wait, it is four because they, st they stepped in Africa. Oh yeah, Morocco, four continents, I was right. <laughs> Four continents in, what, six months? Less? I thought it was a year, but maybe I was wrong because it didn't feel like a year. Yeah, it wasn't a whole year because he spent, he spent the summer in Germany and he spent like a month and a half in India. Everywhere else he was there for less than a week. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how long the trip took. Yeah. But the point is he was doing all of this and he was getting paid for it. And not everyone has all these opportunities available. Even if he thinks they're shit opportunities, they're there. Yeah, the point is, he was able to work his way around the world for several months, just on a whim. He accepted all these jobs on a whim. I couldn't do that. You couldn't do that. I don't know anybody who could do that. But he has the connections and the ability to, should he so feel like it, just tour the world for a few months, go have a little eat, pray, love moment. Like, because he happens to have the right connections and the right friends, because his life is a freaking farce. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get into the negative of the book. This book is supposed to be kind of a farce, but it's not actually funny. Yeah, I think like, you know, humor's hard to judge. And I think maybe the humor in this book wasn't for us. <laughs> But that was also an issue I kind of had, was that I didn't really jive with the humor. Because when I just read the summary, it sounds really funny. Mm -hmm. But when I was actually reading the book, I was sitting there thinking, it's trying to be funny, but it's not. Yeah, and it's just, there are, there are several moments that are like, clearly supposed to be LOL funny moments, but they're just not there for me. And maybe it's the writing style that doesn't work with the sense of humor. <laughs> but I'm not sure you can feel confident saying the humor doesn't work at all. I mean, there are definitely still some moments that we got some laughs out of. For sure, yeah. But humor is so subjective. Like, I don't want to commit to the idea that this book is unfunny. <laughs> I think for me, the reason the humor fell short was that there were a lot of hijinksy moments that didn't go far enough for me. Like, there is a moment, for example, where Arthur has arrived in Italy, 
and he sees a sign for Senor S and he's like I'm pretty sure that's me and he gets in the car and he goes and then as they're driving and driving he starts to wonder where they're going he doesn't speak Italian and his driver doesn't speak English so he has no way of asking to verify that he is in fact in the right place in the right car and he doesn't actually know where he's supposed to be going so he starts to get worried that he's going to the wrong place he starts to get very anxious and he starts to imagine in his mind this sequence of events in which he got into some wrong guy's car and that other guy is in his car and there's going to be this whole confusion etc etc and it's like oh hey this is kind of funny a little mix-up you got into the car of a guy who has a similar name to you and now you're gonna have to figure out a way to get back and you don't speak italian haha <laughs> except when he gets where he's going he wasn't in the wrong car at all and everything's fine and he was just freaking out for no reason yeah and it's like this would have been funnier if he actually was in the wrong car yeah i think you have a point it did feel like the moments weren't going quite far enough to actually be funny yeah and there were a lot of moments like that where like the humor came more from less catastrophizing things than anything actually happening yes i wish i wish he did get into more hijinks hmm. or that the hijinks that he did go into because he did get into plenty did go farther you're right <laughs> Yeah, You're right, they didn't go far enough. Or, like, there's a moment where, uh, you know, they're traveling across the desert in Morocco, and basically people just start dropping like flies because heat exhaustion and things like that. They're getting heat stroke effectively. And the joke is that by the end of this trip, only Les and the other lesbian, who's also turning 50, are unharmed by the desert. Everyone else has given in to heat stroke and gotten sick and cannot travel anymore. But that's kind of it. Yeah, he starts thinking to himself that maybe he's making everybody sick with his presence. And that's funny. <laughs> but you're right that like the ending of all of these jokes is anticlimactic. Yeah. And then in the end it's like they get where they're going. He spends his birthday with the lesbian at a spa. And that's it. Like I don't see how heat stroke is funny. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels like the jokes don't have a punchline. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's like they set up things that could be funny, and it's like, oh, we're going somewhere, and then it doesn't actually go. Mm hmm. I agree. Moving along. Yeah. So this next note is kind of co connected to the fact that Les doesn't narrate his own story. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a tricky situation because. There are things I like about the fact that Freddy narrates this story. I think it works for their relationship. But because of it, there's always this narrative distance between the reader and Les that really kept me from connecting to his character and fully understanding what he wants. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because you do get into his head. And you have to assume that Freddy knows all these things because Les told him eventually. Mm-hmm. But, like, there are moments when you do get deeply into Les's head and you know what he's thinking. It's not like you're completely distant from him the whole time. But rather that there's always a distance from him. Yes. Like, you're never quite close enough. Mm-hmm. 
And considering that this is like an emotional odyssey journey, I do expect to be firmly set in Les's point of view. Mm-hmm. And like fully immersed into his head and what he's going through. And it's not like I needed more explanation of his inner thoughts and struggles, because I feel like they were clearly stated. There was just too much distance there. Yeah, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that while we got his thoughts, anytime his actions were being described, it was being described as if we were in an aerial view watching him. Like, the book starts off with like, we see a man sitting here, his name is Arthur Less, la la la. So we're set up like, this is a distant moment. So then every time we go into his head, it almost feels weird. But then when we get yanked back away from his thoughts and it's like, you're in third person again, it's like, oh right, we're in third person. We're watching Les do things. And there's even some moments where we switch POVs and we're not in Les at all anymore. Yeah, we're yanked back to Freddy even before we know that this story is being told by Freddy, mm -hmm. which is just very jarring as a reader. Mm -hmm. And there's also one moment that makes no sense at all where we are in the point of view of a completely different character simply for the purpose of watching Les arrive and leave India. Mm -hmm. This character plays no other part in the story whatsoever. It's just for those couple of pages. And also, his point of view is a little crazy. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you why. It's this seven-year-old boy in India, and in the first half, he's fine. He's just this kid that's in the airport, he's bored, he sees Les arriving in India, and he's like, oh, an American, cool. And he watches him run around a little, and then, you know, he's gone. He's like, okay, yeah, that was cool. But then we see that kid again when Les is leaving. He's like, hey, the same American from the airport I saw last month. How interesting that I should run into him again. Only now the child is in church, watching him out the window, and the child briefly reflects on the fact that he's in love with the preacher's daughter, who's three, and he calls her a temptress. So we have this odd moment of being in the point of view of a seven-year-old boy having weird, sexist, oddly sexual thoughts about a three-year-old girl. And then we're off again, and it's never, like, it's just gone. It's like, why was that there? I, I don't know why it was there at all. I assume it was supposed to be funny, but it's so unfunny that it's just bizarre. <laughs> and, like, that little girl was mentioned one other time because that preacher did interact with Les at one point. Because he was on the same, like, land where Les was staying in his bungalow. And all we know about her is, like, she's three and she doesn't like to wear clothes. Which, like, what three-year-old does like to wear clothes? Mm-hmm. So, like, Les remarks on the fact that she's running around naked, and he's like, huh, that's cute. Like, she's three, she's running around naked, adorable. Which is, like, fine and innocent and cute. Until the seven-year-old calls her a temptress. And then it's like, stop looking at the naked three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Like, suddenly it becomes creepy, and it's gross, and it's like, why? Why? Why is this here? Why is this here? Shut the book. Turn it off. I'm done. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. And it suddenly makes you question, like, the... The... Less meeting Freddy when he was 12 thing. Like, it just becomes all kinds of creepy. It's like, nope, nope, I'm done, I'm done, I'm gone, I'm out, I'm leaving. Yeah, none of that should have made it past the editing room. Yeah, cut, 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 on the floor, goodbye. Mm-hmm. Our last note is about the writing style itself. Mm-hmm. And this is something where we disagree. The writing style is really literary and really lyrical. There's a lot of, like literary tools used in this, like repetitions and 
similes and stuff like that. I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I did not. <laughs> I kind of hate to say this, but I found the writing to be very pretentious. <laughs> Which just makes it difficult to grasp what's happening. And I don't want to be the person that says that every time lyrical writing comes out, because I know I didn't jive with the writing in This Is How You Lose the Time War either. <laughs> but I guess I just really don't care for that. I had trouble keeping up with what was happening in this book. And I feel like especially because there was this comedic angle that was being attempted, I felt like the super lyrical pretentious writing didn't work with that and counted against the humor. And with me already being, like, emotionally disconnected from Les, it certainly made the story hard to get into. I didn't really start warming up to it until the last few chapters. Which isn't that bad, because the chapters are extremely long. Yeah, there's only, like, ten chapters. <laughs> Maybe less. There's there's one chapter for every location. Mm -hmm. uh, I might make this another side note. I do not care for these books with chapters that just go on for miles. <laughs> Eight. There's eight chapters. Mm-hmm. And that could be a personal preference thing, just like the lyrical writing is a personal preference thing. But for me, those two things combined did make it more difficult to get into the story and to keep up with what was going on. I thought it was pretty. So now we're going to move on to our third category we talked about, which are just observations. Things that aren't necessarily positives or negatives so much as they're just they're in the book and they're worth discussing. Mm -hmm. One of these we already touched on a little. Arthur is basically writing the book we're reading, mm -hmm. but just with another name and location. Arthur is writing this book called Swift about a man whose last name is Swift walking around San Francisco thinking about his life and his problems. And it's very literary and reflective and he tells tells people about it and they say that it's boring and nobody wants to read a day in the life author self-insert story because they've read that story before. And that is ironic because that is the book we're reading. <laughs> we are reading the story of a middle-aged gay man going to places and thinking about his life and his problems. Written by a middle-aged gay man, so there's dimensions going on. And. And the thing is, when you read the biography of the man writing this book, you will notice that his story, his life story, is rather similar to that of Arthur Less. Almost as if we were reading an author self-insert story. <laughs> Even things like that Italian award that Less wins, he's won that award. Mm -hmm. And things like that. <laughs> And Arthur's solution to the fact that nobody cares is to make his book funny. Which, as we mentioned, this book tries very hard to do. So, there's just kind of this meta thing going on there. Mm -hmm. Whether you like it or not, read the book, find out. I kind of liked the idea that it was so meta, but also, like, I don't know, I guess as, as a writer myself, there's part of me that judges it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it's, I can't even tell you whether or not it's done well. Like, it's there. It exists. Yeah. I'm not sure. <sighs> it's definitely not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just kind of, it's there. It's, it's kind part of funny. Of the book. Just like the book was kind of funny at times. Yeah, it's there. It's part of the book. Another thing. The book offers a lot of different theories on love. 
and it doesn't really tell you what to think. There's just a lot of theories. It is a theme. In the end, you get to make up your own mind. There were some theories on love that I really enjoyed, and there were some that I really, really didn't like. But one ongoing underlying idea seemed to be that love and loss will always go hand in hand because humans are stupid and love is not logical. And so one way or another to love is to suffer. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like the book was set on this idea that one way or another, even if love is forever, relationships will always be temporary. And we see that with Les and his former lover, Robert. They were in love. Things seemed to be really, like, good with them. Robert had his issues, but, like, together they were a good couple. And then basically just one day, Robert decided it wasn't working anymore. But they still love each other, and they're still friends. And Arthur will still drop anything to go to Robert's side. So, like, they're not together anymore, but they are. And there's another couple we meet who are hilariously named Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. who have been together for 20 years. And Les finds out that they are breaking up. And when he asks, like, why are you breaking up? What happened? Lewis tells him this story. He says, when I first started dating Clark, we were in this bar and he said in 10 years from now if you're still in love with me I'm gonna come back here and I'm gonna leave you and they were together for 10 years and they were very happy and they were very in love and then 10 years later they come back to the same place and Clark's like so you remember what I said 10 years ago and Lewis is like yeah and Clark's like you want to maybe give it another 10 years and Clark's like yeah I do so they give it another 10 years and then they come back And they say, you know, this has been a good 20 years. I still love you, and we could probably keep it going for another 10 years, but let's quit while we're ahead. (laughs) That's so nutty. (laughs) Yeah, and then they just, and then they just break up. The end. And, like, they still love each other. Neither of them are in love with someone else. There's no problems in their relationship. There's no reason, like, the magic isn't gone. They're still in love with each other. They're still living a good life like it's just that things are so good they're like you know why wait another 10 years to see if it goes bad let's quit while we're ahead and much like arthur i cannot wrap my head around that (laughs) me either (laughs) this isn't a quit while you're ahead thing you're choosing to have a less good life yeah for no real reason (laughs) And then there's other things like the lesbian that we meet. She's sad because, you know, she's had this girlfriend, this life partner for eight years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, her partner falls in love with someone else and leaves her. And she talks about how, you know, they had something really good. But for some reason, whatever she had with this other person was better. And she says, you know, she doesn't blame her partner for that because... There's just, there's true love. And when it hits you, it hits you. And what they had was great, but for some reason, that must have been better. And she's 
upset about it, but she's not angry at her partner. And it's just this kind of like live and let love philosophy that the book really plays on this idea that love comes and goes and relationships come and go and it never makes any moral judgment on it. Mm-hmm. Which in a way I appreciate, but on the other hand, when you do have a very specific idea of love, it can make you question. Mm-hmm. And like, I have a very specific idea of love and what love looks like and what love feels like and what a good relationship is. So for me reading all of these things, I'm like, these people are dysfunctional. <laughs> But if your experiences aren't like mine, if your opinions of love aren't like mine, maybe you'll get something else out of it. Mm-hmm. A third observation. Mm-hmm. There is an, a lot of irony in the fact that this book is a Pulitzer winner. I know, because they mentioned the Pulitzer in the book. Yes. Which is already trying to be deeply meta. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is a scene in the Italy chapter where Arthur reflects on the time that Robert won a Pulitzer. And during that Pulitzer, like, ceremony and everything, one of Robert's friends, who was also a Pulitzer winner, turns to Les and tells him, never win one of these or you will never write again. And then now this book won one. And fun fact, uh, he has written more things. Les has a sequel. It's called Les is Lost. So I do wonder a lot if like when the author when Andrew Shangrier won his Pulitzer for this book if he had a brief moment of like oh no <laughs> and yeah it's not like a big part of the book but it was funny I mean he's really proving himself to Arthur like see I kept writing <laughs> it just takes some determination <laughs> it reminds me of the moment in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel when she meets that painter who painted a masterpiece never showed it to anyone and never painted it anything he was happy with again <laughs> as an author myself which is another kind of art obviously all I could think is where's your courage where's your determination you just keep going don't give up and be defeatist about it I'm saying a lot considering we haven't written anything since 2021 <clears throat> What we've been working on a podcast. This takes a lot of time and energy, people. It's true. We write a lot of scripts. <laughs> for you. For all of you. Yes, all of you have single-handedly tanked our writing. <laughs> but, you know, I think that reading so much since we've started this podcast has improved our writing. I agree. And we certainly know more about the publishing industry now. Mm-hmm. So it's a net gain all around. Yeah, it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go first? You go first. Okay, um, so for me this was a very cerebral, reflective novel. It lacked a little in the plot department, and I spent a lot of time sort of waiting for something to happen, but I think I really began to enjoy the book when I accepted that nothing was going to happen, that that was the kind of book we were here for. Mm-hmm. This is a book for anyone who enjoys a thoughtful literary work where nothing much happens. But the protagonist learns a lot about himself. If you had told me this was a memoir, I would probably believe you because that's the way it's written. And I think parts of it probably are some thinly veiled memoir. And that's not usually my thing, but in the end, I am glad I read the book. 
and one day I might even pick up the sequel. For me, it is a solid 4 out of 5. It's a good book. I'd have to be in the right mood for it, though. I agree. I definitely respect what this book is going for, and I think that it succeeds in a lot of areas. I appreciate having this option of an older gay character going out into the world and finding himself, because I think that's something we definitely need to see more of in fiction. And while the humor and writing style didn't work for me, I have an enormous amount of respect for this book, and I too am glad that I read it. So I would give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. Not quite for me, but very solid. As always, our ratings are subjective. You can give us your notes on Twitter at Couple of Notes, on Instagram at Couple of Notes Podcasts with underscores between each word, on TikTok at Couple of Notes Podcast with no underscores, and you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. And remember to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening, and we will meet back here after the next chapter. chapter.